1: Because we're joined today by special guest Eric Peters, fellow conspirator in the pro-freedom conspiracy from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today?
0: Well, I'm in a really good mood because the first thing I saw this morning at around 4 o'clock when I uh, was drinking my first cup of coffee was a wonderful video from the UK of a guy who went into an Aldi's where they're trying to force people uh, to give up using cash, legal tender money. Uh, in favor of using barcodes and phones and so on to help to habituate them to using digital currency. And instead of doing that, he got himself a box of strawberries and he went up to the service desk and he plunked down exactly how much the stuff cost and walked out the store. And of course, uh, it was just like a repeat of the mask Nazis. The store clerks came after him, but you can't do that. You can't do that. Yeah, I can. It's, it's legal tender currency just like it is here. And it was a wonderful example of how we push back against all the stuff they're trying to cram down our throats.
1: I loved it too. I saw it yesterday for the first time. And and like you, there was this sense of, oh, man, I'd love to see somebody standing up and showing. And I know this sounds subversive, but it's possible to become ungovernable when, when people are trying to force you into some kind of a straitjacket. You've actually addressed this in a recent column, One Thing We Can Do. And I think this is probably mm-hmm. as good a place as any to start today because I'm sure there are a lot of people feeling discouraged that, you know, if the walls are closing in. What can I realistically do about it?
0: Well, they want us to feel discouraged. They want us to think that we don't have this incredible power, which is this power of the veto, of simply saying, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to buy that. No, I'm not going to put up with that. You know, the, all these guys, a the case in point, other examples, and we've addressed this before, Uh, We're refusing to put on the stupid mask, uh, refusing to stick out your arm to be jabbed. Uh, And now people are saying no to the electric car, which is just fabulous, you know, because they don't have to buy them and don't have to be pressured into this. And I think it scales, you know, all these other things. Go out and buy a portable gas generator. Get uh, Get yourself a water heater. Do all the things they don't want you to do and become, as you say, ungovernable.
1: I love it. And, and again, we underestimate our ability to say no. And as we saw with COVID, you know, especially, I think you, you mentioned masks in particular. Mm-hmm. Peer pressure is such a real thing. And a lot of people I know went along with the masks just because, mm-hmm. well, it's, it's easier than standing there, you know, being yelled at or otherwise, you know, um, discouraged by people who chose to take that path of least resistance.
0: Mm-hmm. And they're trying to do the same thing with this cashless stuff. You know, they, they erect a store, I don't know, uh, people who are listening might want to go to YouTube and look at it. Uh, you go into one of these Aldi's, and it's not just Aldi's, but this is a case in point. Uh, and they have sort of a, uh, a turnstile type system and you have to scan your phone, you know, in order just to go in the store to shop so that they can know who you are and, and, and collate and collect all this data. Uh, and then you get whatever you're gonna buy and you're you know supposed to go up and, and show them your phone or whatever and pay via some kind of an app. And they depend on the social pressure to, 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 to accomplish the compliance that they want. And they want it to become a fate a complete. They figure that if they can get enough people to go along with this, then it's essentially going to take on an inertia and it will become unstoppable. Our goal is to stop it before it picks up inertia.
1: Hear, hear. And, and I again, I'm, I'm hearkening back to lessons learned from, from the COVID experience. If more people would have stood up at the very beginning and said, not just no, but hell no, I'm not going to do this. Yep. We never would have been backed into the kind of corner that we found ourselves backed into.
0: Yeah, I agree. This is not just an imposition, you know, as the masks were, and it's not a convenience either. You know, that's the really subtle thing that they're trying to use now. Oh, you don't have to handle dirty money. You don't have to fumble with coins and, and, and bills. This is very sinister. They want to obtain control over our finances because if they're able to do that, they will have obtained control over us. You know, imagine not being able to just anonymously go out and buy something. You know, having the freedom to to, to exchange and uh, exchange goods and services, but to have to get permission to be to know in the back of your mind that you're only going to be allowed to use, uh, you know, use your app to buy something, provided the government or the corporations say it's okay. You know, if you're disobedient, you're not wearing a mask. You haven't been vaccinated. Whatever they come up with, your carbon footprint is too big. They're not going to let you buy anything. That's what this is all about. It's not about convenience. It's about control.
1: Well, and and there's no shortage of excuses for what the next crisis will be. I I guess I kind of missed the transition from uh, you know climate change to climate crisis, and now the push mm-hmm. is for climate emergency. And uh, of course. it it just seems like okay since uh, COVID we we kind of got past that people are back to normal so now we're going to scare everybody to death with the weather and try to uh, to uh, I don't know what outlaw travel outlaw you know eating meat whatever it may be
0: yeah and that's not an exaggeration they're very explicit about it they they're uh, overtly talking about shutting down farms they're talking about um, disallowing uh, travel by air for example except perhaps they might allow you. One trip uh, by plane every two or three years. I think the proposal is obviously they're trying to shove us out of cars, not into electric cars, out of cars. Period. Uh, that's what their agenda is, and it's very clear. And it it follows the same pattern of, of ramping up this this hysteria and fear about something that isn't real. You know, this idea that the earth is in peril and we're all going to die is silly.
1: Yeah, you know, that is as
0: silly and. And, and and not based, in fact, as this idea that there was a, a black plague afoot and we were all going to start dropping like cordwood, vomiting blood. It's nonsense.
1: Well, it's I have a hard time with the whole climate, uh, the boiling uh, earth, you know, nonsense, simply because it always comes back to you have too many things in your life that are good or convenient, whether it be air conditioning, sure. whether it be a, an automobile or, or you know, Farming for that, now I mean, for crying out loud, I'm hearing rumbles about, you know, we're going to have to go after farmers because they're contributing mm-hmm. to this this climate catastrophe.
0: Yeah, we can, um, we can see what the true motivation is uh, in the way they act as opposed to what they say, by which I mean the people uh, who are pushing all of this. If it truly is such a dire emergency, then how come they're flying around in private jets? How come uh, they're buying 5,000 square foot mansions on Martha's Vineyard? How come their carbon footprint is bigger than an army of Sasquatches? You know, it's always us, uh, the little people, the deplorables. We're the ones who are supposed to sacrifice, endlessly sacrifice. And I think one of the more important points about this particular crisis is to point out the fact that they've been predicting this crisis for as long as you and I have been alive for more than 50 years. And each time it's been proved wrong. They keep saying this is going to happen in 10 years. That's going to happen in 15 or 20. It never does. And I think it's high time that we, we demand, look, if you're going to claim there's a crisis, bring out the truth. We're right. tired of your chicken little assertions uh, and being uh, made to reduce our standard of living and be impoverished for the sake of your, at best, neurotic fears and more, more probably your vicious attempt to just turn us into peons.
1: Well, and there is one place, though, where I have found myself um, reluctantly embracing the idea of eating bugs, and that is uh, I encourage my chickens. To eat all the bugs they yes. want, um, they're they're the only bug eaters in the household, and in return, you know, they provide me with you know eggs and uh, companionship and uh, no no small amount of entertainment. So uh, that's that's one of the ways I'm pushing back. That's one of the ways I'm exercising veto. My wife brought home this incredible uh, bounty from our garden that we do with with her mm-hmm. parents, and I know it's a small thing, Eric, but that's when I really feel like you know what. I, in a sense, in a small way, I'm standing on my own feet when I'm doing those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. You know, I think for for me, one of the most alarming aspects of what's going on is it's kind of like a a secular end times, eschatological uh, religion that we're dealing with. You know, this hair shirting and flagellating, uh, uh, you know, that, that it's, it's the end is nigh. you know, you used to have the caricature of that, the guy in the, the Jesus outfit standing on the street with the sign, right? You know, now, instead of becoming an aberration That sort of thing has has kind of spread out and become a mass phenomenon, and I think it's because a lot of people are very profoundly, deeply alienated, don't have a lot of meaning in their lives, don't know what to do. So, uh, you know, they're given a meaning. Look, the earth is in peril. Wear a mask. Uh, You know, this is how you show what a good person you are. And it's very sad because people are being driven insane by this, and soon they're going to be driven into starvation if this thing continues.
1: Well, a good friend of mine uh, messaged me yesterday and just said, "Look, you know, I don't care what the next emergency is. He says, "I will not go along with it." And and yep. and, and he followed up with, "I'm dead serious. I won't do it." And then then uh, came the the wonderful meme of uh, Mel Gibson from The Patriot, if you remember the yep. to- the Tomahawk scene, mm-hmm. him splattered yep. in blood. "How serious are sure. you about not taking that vaccine?" This serious.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, and I do think that at this point there is a sizable percentage of the population that's onto it. You know, the chicken little story, uh, the boy who cried wolf, we all read that as a kid. Uh, I think these uh, these perpetual crises uh, have kind of reached the point of jumping the shark for a lot of people. You know, they, they realize what's going on here. It's the same script, just modified for whatever the, the new crisis happens to be. And we all understand, or a lot of us understand what they're after and what they're about. And we're not going to put up with it. And we better not put up with it because it's not a matter of it being an inconvenience, not a matter of, oh, we're gonna pay a little more here or a little more there. They intend to destroy this country. They intend to destroy our standard of living. They intend to ensurf all of us and create a pyramid with them at the top and the rest of us at the bottom.
1: Here, here. hold that thought. We're gonna continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com coming up in just a few moments. If you wanna check out my show notes, you'll find a link to Eric's website back in just a moment. Yes.
0: Is the Brian Hyde Show?
1: This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, uh, I, I saw something on Twitter yesterday, one of those rare gems of wisdom. And I thought I would run this past you because I thought you, of all people, would relate. The person said, there are a number of people today who would find it very difficult to believe that there was a time when you could buy a serviceable used car for under $1,000. Right. I mean, weren't those the days? It's
0: true. And, you know, part of the reason that that's going away is because of the same forces that we were just talking about a moment ago. And the latest thing that they're up to is to use the the power of the regulatory state to effectively uh, outlaw pretty much everything that isn't an electric car. uh, The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has proposed that by 2032, which is nine years from now, every vehicle, vehicle period, must average 58 miles per gallon. Now, to put that in some context, the only vehicle you can buy right now that even comes close to that, doesn't make it, but comes close, is the Toyota Prius Hybrid. So you can imagine the effect of this regulation on the truck market, for example, on SUVs, including just family vehicles. There isn't any way that that can be complied with. Simply as a matter of physics, it's not possible uh, without resorting to very small vehicles that are hybrid-powered. So the objective here is to push everything off the market that isn't to some degree or another battery-powered. That's what they're after. And it's very oily because instead of passing a law saying, we forbid you to build and we forbid you to buy anything other than an electric car. They just posit these impossible to comply with regulations and say, oh, we're not allowing anything. You could have a truck. You could build a car if you want to, but it has to comply with these regulations. It's a really despicable tactic.
1: Okay, so how long before that same logic is applied to, oh, I don't know, firearms? We're not saying you can't have guns. It just has to have this smart chip technology that only recognizes your biometric markers, blah, blah, blah.
0: Well, sure. It all scales. I try to point out the common thread here so that people understand it's not this isolated one thing. It's many things. You know, look at what they're doing with the water heater. They're essentially saying that it will be, uh, as a matter of, of regulatory regime compliance, impossible for companies to sell you a uh, an electric water heater anymore. So you're going to have to buy one of those on-demand systems. And those are fine if you're rich enough to afford it because you're talking about several thousand dollars typically to install one of those tankless instant on water systems in your house, you know, and they they have the arrogance and the effrontery to to tell people, oh, you're going to save so much money on your electrical bill. They're not telling you how much you're going to have to spend on the system. And then, of course, uh, you know, if if they're increasing the demand for electricity, what do you suppose that's going to do to your electric bill? It's all designed to impoverish people and to enrich connected people, the ones who profit from these sorts of things, whether they're uh, the tankless water heater companies or the electric vehicle companies.
1: And speaking of electric vehicles, I'm seeing more and more articles, and I'm talking mainstream media articles, acknowledging Mm -hmm. there's a huge glut of EVs that are not being bought at this time.
0: Yeah, they can't keep the cat in the bag anymore. And here's another wonderful correlation. We can all go back a couple years. You know, they were telling everybody, Oh, you take your vaccine, you won't get COVID. Remember when uh, the old pedophile said that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and then it became impossible to suppress the fact that, in fact, the people who got the so-called vaccine were getting sick and really sick, whereas the people who uh, shunned the shot were doing just fine. And it got to a point where it was just not possible any longer to deny the obvious. And it's getting to be the same with these EVs. They're stacking up. They are sitting there on dealers' lots. They're not selling. And the reason they're not selling is because people are beginning to realize they're being lied to. They're finding out the truth about how temperature extremes, heat, cold, affect the range. They're figuring out how much they're going to have to spend in terms of time planning for and waiting for their EV to charge. And most fundamentally, they're looking at the price tag of these things and thinking, there's just no way. I can't afford to spend $50,000 on an electric car. It's just not going to work. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really lovely to see the truth about this finally getting out
1: so give me your best take are we are we likely to see a repeat of the uh remember the tarp bailouts in uh, 2008 2009 yeah. um i mean look the these automobile manufacturers if they're sitting on a bunch of evs that nobody's buying i assume that means that uh, they're hemorrhaging money at some place
0: oh yeah ford uh ford ceo jim farley came out the other day and revised his prior estimate of how many billions of dollars Ford has lost so far on this EV boondoggle. And that scales across the entire industry. All these car companies are hemorrhaging money over this, and it's going to get far worse uh, You know, even as we get into the, the, you know, the fall, because these vehicles that are stacking up, they're very soon going to be last year's cars. And then they're going to have to be even heavily even more discounted, and they're already discounted, and they're still not going to sell. So do I expect some sort of a bailout? Probably, but I expect something worse than that. Uh, I think that the are the, the, these, these people in the government are, are getting together with people in the car business and figuring out ways to eliminate alternatives to their electric vehicles so that people have no choice but to somehow buy an electric vehicle. And if they can't afford it, maybe they'll just get to get an app on their cell phone, which will allow them to dial up uh, an EV ride share. I just published an article about this earlier today, if, if people are interested in that.
1: So, basically, uh, we'll all be stuck in EV Uber land.
0: Yes. You know, ultimately, what they want is what they told us very explicitly, which is that we'll own nothing, and they'll own everything, and they'll be very happy. And we'll just be paying constantly for various subscriptions. You know, that's the model that they want, the Bill Gates model, the streaming TV model for everything. You know, you won't own a home. You won't own a vehicle. You'll just pay a monthly fee to be allowed to have use of those things.
1: You know, not that many years ago, this would have been an excellent uh, plot line for a Black Mirror episode.
0: <laughs> right, right. We, we're living, you know, in the elaboration of a dystopian novel. That's where we are right now.
1: So let's uh, let's talk for a moment about alternatives to uh, EVs, because I know this mm-hmm. this is something that you have a lot of background and experience in in cars. If a person is just you know dedicated to, look, they're not, you can't make me buy an EV, you can't force me into it, what kind of vehicle is is a reasonable um, investment for someone who wants to be able to drive an internal combustion engine long term, uh, maybe do their own wrenching, what what direction should they be looking?
0: Well, just in general terms, uh, the simpler the better for one, uh, and uh, a, ideally, a vehicle that they built lots of because if they built lots of them, that means there's going to be lots of spare parts available, and there'll probably be a uh, an aftermarket that will allow you to get everything that you need to keep that vehicle going, even in terms of rebuilding it uh, if necessary, so that you can keep it going for long enough. I think that's the key thing here. You know, we may have to deal with a pretty dark time, but eventually, I pray, that the ship is going to right itself. So it's just a matter of getting through. It's sort of analogous to, you know, having enough food stored up and having enough other things that you need stored up Weather the storm. I think that's the situation we're
1: facing. Yeah, and you know, to some people that may sound like, well, that sounds kind of apocalyptic. But to mm-hmm. me, it's just common sense. You're not talking about it's going to be yep. this way forever and ever. But we are headed for a season where life as we knew it, the world that you and I grew up in, um, already most uh, most yep. rational adults can accept, it's not the same world. It that world is gone. But whatever is coming is probably going to require a little bit more effort from us than than what we had before.
0: I agree. This disease has got to run its course. You know, it's unfortunate that this country was infected uh, by the disease of communism, essentially authoritarian collectivism. You know, they've rebranded it uh, as postmodernism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it. But it's the same evil ideology that enslaved uh, China and enslaved the Soviet Union and put millions of people in the ground. That's what we're dealing with, the same sickness. And it's being propagated by the same sick people. And our job is to do everything we can uh, to, to throw obstacles in its path and just hold the ground until the disease can run its course.
1: Yep. And, and I think the, the most important thing that any of us can do at the individual level right now is absolutely drill down and be certain of who you are and what you stand for. So when, yep. when the fear mongering starts, you're not easily you know swayed, you're not malleable and, and easily manipulated.
0: Yeah, and when you have the power to do it, exercise your veto, again, that Aldi's case, now, this is an older man, you know, he, he wasn't some big strapping young guy, but he still had the guts to walk in there with cash and refuse to play their game. And by doing that, using your economic veto in particular, you can have an effect. And if you, anybody listening to this doubts that, look at what millions of vetoes have done to Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light.
1: Here, hear. Eric, great to visit with you as always. I always feel encouraged after our conversations.
0: Ditto, O'Brien? Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let me once again thank you for being a part of my audience. I never know. I never have a clue how many people are listening. I, and I sometimes get asked, hey, uh, you know, so uh, what are your listenership numbers like? And I can, you know, I can get a rough feel from looking at podcast downloads and that sort of thing. But, uh, it, you know, this is spread out over a lot of different platforms, including terrestrial radio, including uh, internet streaming radio, including, I don't know. For all I know, you know, there could be some alien life force out there, according to the U.S. government, you know, monitoring this and going, hey, check this guy out. <laughs> hey, actually makes sense. I hope they're saying. But uh, nonetheless, I don't know who's listening. I never have a clue. It could be one person. You know, if that's you, thank you for being that one person. This much I do know. There's truth that needs to be spoken. And as some of it is, is not always the most pleasant truth. It's not always soft on your ears. But uh, it's, it's truth that needs to be spoken. There are things that, that need to be clarified. And it's not that I have all the answers, but man, do I have access to a lot of great resources. And, and above all, I have a desire to share truth and light as, as freely as I possibly can. So if you're one of those individuals who's looking for some truth, some light, some encouragement, you know, someone to just kind of help make sense of, of what's happening, that's what I'm here for. But that in no way implies that you have to agree with whatever I'm saying. You don't. Above all, I'm encouraging you think for yourself, really. Think things through and learn to, to research meticulously and to, to, to become your own expert, your own uh, fact checker, if you will. It'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. And you'll notice the good things in life as well as, you know, some of the not so good things. All right. Having said that, I think someone wants us frightened and off balance. Why do I say that? Well, why else would they be breathlessly informing us that we've now entered the age of global boiling? That sounds a lot worse than global warming, right? Or or global climate change. Uh, It's now global boiling. We've got to do something. And and that's something I think is, is going to be very dramatic, and drastic. I don't know for sure what they have in mind, but it can't be good. I do appreciate writers like Brendan O'Neill from Spiked Online. He's got an article here called Global Boiling? Don't Be Ridiculous. It's time to stand up to the eco-fearmongering of our medieval elites. He says, and just like that, we've entered a new epoch. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived decreed UN chief Antonio Guterres last week. It's hard to know what's worse, the hubris and arrogance of this globalist official who imagines he has the right to declare the start of an entire new age or the servile compliance of the media elites who lapped up his deranged edict about the coming heat death of Earth. The era of global boiling has arrived and it is terrifying, said the front page of the The Guardian, as if Guterres's word was gospel, his every utterance a divine truth. We urgently need to throw the waters of reason on this delirious talk of a boiling planet, says Brendan O'Neill. Now, Guterres issued his neo-papal bowl about the boiling of our world in response to the heat waves that have hit some countries over the past two weeks. Climate change is here, and it is terrifying, he said. We see families running from the flames and workers collapsing in scorching heat, and it is just the beginning, he said, doing his best impression of a first-century millen- millenarium crackpot. In fact, forget climate change, he said. Forget global warming, too. What we're witnessing is a boiling. It brings to mind the book of Job, which warned that the serpent Leviathan would cause the seas to boil like a cauldron. Leviathan's back, only we call him climate change now. Now, the obsequious speed with which the media turned Gutierrez's commandment into front-page news was extraordinary. Brandon O'Neill says they behaved less like reporters than like the slavish scribes of this secular god and his delusional visions. World entering, era of global boiling, cries the Independent. And we know who's responsible. No prizes for guessing who that is. It's you, me, and the rest of our pesky species. It always is. The planet is boiling, one headline breezily declared, confirming that Gutierrez's fearful phrase, his propagandistic line, no doubt drawn up with the aid of spin doctors in some UN backroom, is already being christened as fact. Almost immediately, media outlets started lecturing readers on how they might help put a halt to the coming evaporation of our planet. SBS in Australia advised us to reduce meat intake, stop driving cars, cut down on flights. In short, stop all the fun stuff make sacrifices to appease nature's angry gods. Even self-styled radicals made themselves mouthpieces of the UN's medieval sermonizing. Novara Media instantly embraced global boiling as an apt metaphor for the arsonist impact humanity has had on Earth. Scratch a Marxist these days, find a Malthusian. He asks, can't we have just a little critical thinking on the idea of global boiling? The first thing a rational mind ought to note is that boiling is when liquid turns into vapor. Sorry to be pedantic, but he says, I think the meaning of words is important. Does anyone really believe our planet is so fantastically hot now that lakes and rivers and seas will shortly start to evaporate? If you don't, and you shouldn't because it's baloney, then you should not use a phrase like global boiling. Indeed, one professor of climate physics rebuked Gutierrez, mildly, of course, for starting to depart from the underlying scientific evidence. Indeed, Earth is not boiling and we shouldn't say that it is. Now, there are other reasons to be skeptical of the boiling hysteria. Yes, the weather is hot in parts of Europe, but there have been heat waves throughout history, long before the dawn of industry. What's more, the Greek government says that most of the 667 fires it has experienced over the sweaty past fortnight were started by human hand. So those ferocious flames gleefully described by our green elites as Mother Nature's punishment of mankind were mainly the handiwork of arsonists. Then there's the fact that cold weather kills far more people than hot weather. During, or will the chilly months, rather, in which uh, numerous old people will perish, be described by Gutierrez and his apostles as global freezing? A new ice age? Of course not. There are no propaganda points, no opportunities for modernity bashing in fear mongering over cold weather. So Brandon O'Neill says, let's be clear. Global boiling is not a factual or scientific phrase. Rather, it represents yet another ramping up of the green politics of fear. It's the latest addition to the already fat dictionary of eco-dread. Economic inflation isn't the only problem we face today. There's threat inflation, too. The catastrophism of climate change, in particular, is puffed up on pretty much a weekly basis. This is why we've gone from climate change to climate crisis to climate emergency. And it's why we're now going from global warming to global boiling. Language is used to terrorize the masses, to snap us out of our supposed apathetic coolness on the issue of climate change, and force us to agree with the cranky elites that the end is really nigh, and it's our fault. As the Washington Post said in its coverage of the global boiling edict, apocalyptic apocalyptic superlatives can be useful in underlining the importance of this issue. Now, this is a familiar tactic of the eco-propagandists. A few years ago, Extinction Rebellion protested outside the offices of the New York Times to put pressure on it to dump the phrase climate change in preference for the panic-inducing climate emergency. Linguistic experts have cheered the media's embrace of catastrophic language because apparently fretful terminology can help to convey to the public an increasingly urgent threat. They're trying to manipulate us. They're using the grammar of Armageddon to cajole us into compliance with the green narrative and its demands for sacrifice in everyday life. Brendan Smith says, as he argues in his new book, A Heretic's Manifesto, they want to coerce us into the realm of doom by making us think less about climate change and more about climate chaos, climate disaster, even climate apocalypse. He says it's imperative that we resist this linguistic authoritarianism. Global boiling isn't only a ridiculous phrase, it's also an insult to truth, reason, and us. That such a fact-light, post-scientific, hysterical phrase has been used by the UN, the activist set, and the media elites is a reminder that they see the rest of us, the little people, as malleable creatures to be marched this way and that way by scary words and warnings of a hellish future. He says it's boiling anger we should feel for this arrogant crusade of emotional manipulation. That guy's got away with words. I don't disagree with the thing he said there. How could this be anything but manipulation? I mean, look, it's hot. I don't like the hot weather either, but uh, I just have this fuzzy memory ever since I was a kid that every year about this time, it gets, uh, what was that word again? Oh yeah, hot. Hot. And there have been some summers that have been hotter than others, and I don't know. Maybe it's the years that I spent living in St. George, Utah, which, by the way, really, uh, if you want to understand what summer heat is like, you know, 110, 112 degrees, not out of the question. But it wasn't like, oh, our world was ending. For crying out loud, some of my happiest memories are the fact that my friend DJ and I would hop on our mountain bikes after I got off the air, and we would go bike riding at 109 degrees. Now, yes, that is kind of a flex, Riding up a single track trail in 109 degree heat, sometimes with a bit of a wind going. It kind of felt like riding straight into a blow dryer. But we did it. Yeah, we took water and Gatorade and we, you know, did our best to stay hydrated. I agree with Brendan O'Neill. Somebody is trying to scare us and scare us good. It's the purposes for which they're trying to scare us that we ought to be questioning at every turn.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors who include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, and ClimbingUpward and ClimbingUpwardMusic.com. All right, you'll find links to them in my show notes. You can access those show notes at the thebryanhideshow.com. Oh, yeah, a lot of stuff going on online. Speaking of which, I'm very grateful for the Internet, and not only is it a great distraction, right? We can spend a lot of time watching cool cat videos, but it keeps the receipts when someone is trying to be deceitful. And uh, case in point, anytime somebody tries to tell you, hey, this common-sense gun control that we're pushing for, it's not about confiscation. Nobody's trying to come for your guns. There are plenty of receipts, where especially the political left can be seen saying, no, that's exactly what they would like to do. Included in today's show notes, you will find an article from D. Parker. This is from AmericanThinker.com. Confiscation. Why isn't the far left honest about their end game on guns? And the bottom line here is, he says, look, leftists keep on lying about their true goals on guns to get everyone to accept the intermediate steps to confiscation. He says, how could there be any other end game on on guns? Every step they take moves toward confiscation. Why would they, you know, march that direction and then stop just short of their goal of total control? Which is what every collectivist authoritarian government has done throughout human history. See, if they were honest about their ultimate goal, nobody would fall for the intermediate steps. Incremental moves that do nothing to reduce gun violence are only useful in advancing toward controlling and confiscating guns. And by the way, it's not just guns that they want absolute control over. The left, and particularly we're talking like the Marxist leftists, want control over your guns, your gas stoves, your generators, anything with which you can be self-sufficient. They want to impose things like universal background checks so you can't exercise your right to keep and bear arms without government permission, which ultimately leads to universal gun confiscation. Anyway, I recommend this article. I hope you'll find it uh, worthwhile. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but he has kept the receipts on, on a few of the more uh, dystopian fantasies that people on the left have have written out about, well, here's how we could do it. Here's how we could go around confiscating everybody's guns. And by we, they mean, here's how we could send somebody else to go knock your door down and take your guns away. Bottom line is the far left is always in a fevered obsession with gun confiscation. It always has been, and it always will be its end game. Meanwhile, they continue to lie and to deny this fact. I guess my final statement on the matter is don't believe them and don't give up your firearms. You have nothing to gain and everything to lose by complying with people who want you helpless. All right. That said, let's turn to our article of the day. If you haven't experienced the writing of C.S. Lewis, I don't know how to put this other than you are missing out on a marvelous experience. And there's a a great article here from uh, Samantha, I'm sorry, Yes, Samantha Roth. I, 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 it's her last name I was going to struggle with here. Samantha Roth, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, writes about the Chronicles of Narnia and the, learn, the power of learning from the past. She says, ever since I first read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I have been enthralled with the brilliance of C.S. Lewis's books for children. So she says, I was surprised when I first read John Milton's Paradise Lost and stumbled across a few lines that were very familiar. Okay, these are the lines. His visage drawn, he felt to sharp and spare. His arms clung to his ribs, his legs entwining. Each other, till supplanted down he fell, a monstrous serpent on his belly prone. Now she says, if you've read the Silver Chair from the Chronicles of Narnia, this passage will ring a bell for you as well. When the Queen of the Underland fails in her attempt to enchant Rillian, Eustace, Jill, and Puddleglum, she loses her pleasant demeanor and transforms into a serpent. This is how C.S. Lewis wrote it. "'Her arms appeared to be fastened to her sides. "'Her legs were intertwined with each other "'and her feet had disappeared. "'The long green train of her skirt thickened and grew solid "'and seemed to be all one piece "'with the writhing green pillar of her interlocked legs. "'And that writhing green pillar was curving and swaying "'as if it had no joints, or else were all joints. "'Her head was thrown thrown far back, "'and while her nose grew longer and longer, "'every other part of her face seemed to disappear.' Now, Samantha Roth says Milton's influence on on Lewis is striking through these passages. In fact, Lewis had such an appreciation for Milton's work that he wrote a preface to Paradise Lost to help readers better understand the poem. In Lewis's view, Milton's great success in Paradise Lost lies in practicing the creedal affirmation without losing the quality of myth. In other words, Milton created a beautiful and seamless blend of art and Christian belief in his story. And many readers would agree that Lewis achieved the same effect in the Chronicles of Narnia. This respect Lewis has for Milton presents a frequently ignored fact to us today. And that is, paying attention to the wisdom of those who have gone before us strengthens our ingenuity and helps us evaluate our present culture. Our culture today is diseased with a disregard for history. Frequently, people in the past are seen as backward, bigoted, and ignorant. With all of our enlightened modern philosophies, scientific knowledge, and advanced technology, we are above anything that previous ages could teach us, or maybe not. Lewis, an adherent-turned-critic of chronological snobbery, wrote, Our own age is also a period, and certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. They are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack or feels it necessary to defend them. Samantha Roth says, according to Lewis, the way for us to see beyond the limited perspective of our own culture is to seek out and learn from the past. This was a conviction that Lewis took to heart, so much so, in fact, that he recommended reading an old book after every new one. As evidenced in his writing, Lewis read broadly and thought deeply about many old books, including Milton's Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost is a beautiful narrative poem on the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. Since he was the chair of medieval and renaissance literature at Cambridge and an avid reader, it's no surprise that Lewis was influenced by Milton's poem. Multiple different stories, mythologies, and concepts, many of them ancient, are woven seamlessly into Narnia. Lewis's study of past works deepened his art, philosophy, and theology, making his books fresh and informed for a modern audience. For instance, the character of Satan in Paradise Lost seems to reappear in both Jadis and the Queen of the Underland. The scene where Aslan creates the Narnian creatures out of the ground in The Magician's Nephew also comes almost directly from the pages of Paradise Lost. Even Jadis's method of tempting Diggory to eat the apple in The Magician's Nephew mirrors that of the Miltonic Satan when tempting Eve. Milton is still one of the giants in English literature today. His work has impacted many books, not just the Chronicles of Narnia. And as Lewis learned from Milton, we too can find the value that comes from learning from the great minds of the past. If we do not learn from previous ages, not only will we lack the skills that we could have gained by studying masterpieces, but we also limit ourselves to our current time's way of thinking. Recognizing those who have done work well in the past helps us to continue to create work that is well-rounded and informed in the present. It also enables us to recognize the fleeting ideas and fads of the day and focus on that which lasts. Samantha Ross concludes by saying, In a world full of so much noise, blind pride, and unfounded assertions, isn't it time for us to follow Lewis's example and reach for the work of the ancients as we evaluate the present? I know I've said this before, but i I just I got to reiterate this for the sake of those maybe hearing it for the first time. The power of reading old books, especially old books that when you pick it up and you start reading, you go, whoa, this is above my head. This is hard. But the power that comes from reading them is twofold. Number one, you strengthen your mind. When you read things that are above your reading level, that require you to stop and pull out a dictionary every so often, what the heck does this mean? And look it up before you move on. You're exercising your brain. And just like calisthenics will strengthen your body and leave it stronger and more able than before, the same thing will happen with your ability to think. You're actually creating neural pathways in your mind that uh, that speed up the process and make it easier as you go. I experienced this personally the first time I read Plato. The first time I picked up Plato and started reading, I think it was uh, Plato's Republic, it literally gave me a headache. I was like, oh, I've never had a book actually make my head hurt, but that one did. And it came through perseverance, reading it and going through it and not just breezing through, I read the word and, you know, I don't care what it says, but really making yourself understand what is being said, suddenly it became easier, okay, just like exercise. The second thing is you will recognize that the people who came before us were not dummies, I know, I labored under this impression that, well, you know, the, up until 100 or two years ago, everybody was pretty much, you know, just primitive and probably, uh, you know, roasting their dinner on a stick over a fire. And then you start to read, like, the Platonic dialogues or just read, you know, read uh, the, the musings of uh, Marcus Aurelius. And you come to find out these are extremely intelligent, deep-thinking people whose thoughts will lift your own, even if they were wrong about a thing or two.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.